Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to the Frankenstein chat. It's the 133rd edition. And for those of you watching on video, you can see that we have a guest. Hello, Louise. Hi. Yeah, Hello, to join us. Hi, we'll sort of do a formal introduction in a minute. Uh, and of course, now that it's been revealed, those what, uh, listening on the podcast, you'll, you'll know that we have a guest. Um, but uh, uh, in a way, we're sort of um, halfway through a little bit further than in January. Um, but it's, uh, I mean, in a way, there's just so much going on in education um, that we are never short of things to talk about. And just to give you a little bit of background, um, before we record, we always sort of just chat with our guest and with Stan to make sure that we don't double up on these issues. But uh, I have to say it's been quite hard this week to, to eliminate it so that uh, Louise has one, I have one and Stan has one. So there's there's a lot we're going to miss out, unfortunately, but, uh, um, but I think there'll be enough to interest you uh, this week. So how are you, Stan? um blue sky i don't i don't know what we've done to deserve it this morning but uh can't wait for the weather to get good enough to go out and walk and and get <clears> some <throat> fresh air and things it's it's like it's, it was dangerous yesterday to go out on the uh on the paths and stuff outside and you, you don't know if the ambulance crews are in or out so <laughs> well i've started jogging again I, the last time i did was at the end of november um, and I had about four, I've had four sort of decent jogs, but I've got to about four kilometres. And uh, But fortunately, it started to snow a couple of nights ago, so I've not been able to do it for a couple of nights. Um, but I think it's going to pick up this weekend. Anyway, um, Louise, hello, thank you for joining us. Uh, Louise Salmon. Hi, hi. Um, nice to join you. Yeah. Do you want to just let our sort of uh, uh, friends who are watching, listening, know who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. My name is Louise Salmon. I'm currently the um, chief exec at an independent training company called Primary Gold. Uh, that's my current role. I uh, have a, a fairly long history in education, majoritively further education. So I've been a director of teaching, learning quality and uh, a digital team. And I've also worked in vocational and apprenticeship qualifications. But throughout my whole career over the last 14 years, I've always been connected to schools the whole way through. Brilliant. So what is Primary Goal then? So Primary Goal is an independent training provider. We deliver apprenticeship training and we also deliver uh, non-apprenticeship training. So topics like functional skills, uh, maths and English or non-vendor uh, non regulated qualifications. So um, pieces that are specific to industry as well. And uh, one day courses, so things like introduction to cyber security, all of it is based around digital, cyber, ICT ah, right, um, yeah. and network engineer, those those uh, sort of subject areas. Now, I, I saw a tweet from you, Louise. Um, we this is and, and the tweet was after we had spoken. We've spoken a couple of times uh, over the last few months. But there was a tweet you put out that drew quite a lot of attention, didn't it, Louise? It was all to do with £16 million, I think, Yes, oh, that, yes. I was thinking, which one have I popped out? <laughs> yes, so, um, so we're really fortunate at Primary Goal, and I think it's uh, very much driven through the integrity that we have at the company, and that runs through all of our staff, and also the ethos that we have. So 
we are approached regularly by large conglomerates and they do approach us um, to say that we've got this uh, pot of levy apprenticeship money that is sitting there unused and we would really like you to use it. So just before Christmas, we were approached by a very large conglomerate and they said, um, look, we've got over 16 million pounds that we have gathered from different points in the business. We've decided that actually we're more than likely not going to utilise that. Uh, we've taken a look at your programmes, we've taken a look at your culture, and we'd really like you to utilise it. They've got, there is no hard and fast stipulation. There is a request that they um, have a list of postcodes for deprived areas. And if we can utilise it in those areas first, then brilliant. Um, if not, then it is there. But however, we are to try and prioritise um, those postcodes. To just put that into perspective, that's probably about 80% of the postcodes in England. So it isn't that it's only 10% of the postcodes, right. it's it's pretty much everywhere. Um, alongside that 16 million, I'll uh, give you another example. Last October, we were um, already in discussions with a large uh, banking corporation and they offered us £980,000 and we utilised for one area of schools, uh, 510 of that. And then we've been offered more again since. Right. So the, the, the mixture in the large conglomerates, they range from um, Amazon, Microsoft, uh, Lloyds Banking, the cooperative, um, all the way through to um, all sorts. Um, and we're, we are very fortunate that we are approached. Brilliant. I mean, for those of you who are not aware, um, what, uh, the answer is, why do these companies have large sums of unspent apprenticeship levy money? Um, is And a good example, um, you mentioned the co-op before, an organisation I've been associated with for a, a number of years. They struggle to pay their levy because the, um, if they have a store manager or a member of staff who they want to send on a training course, they can get the cost of the training course covered by the levy but they can't get the cost of the replacement member of staff who takes their place in the store for that day. Mm. It actually makes, it restricts the use of that levy. And the co-op have, have put a lot, you know, as I suppose a number, well, I know a number of Northern businesses have tried to put a lot of pressure on the government to free up the use of that levy. Um, I think before you mentioned, there was a vast sum of money of un, unclaimed yeah. levy. What was that figure again you mentioned before we chat, uh, started recording? It's absolutely ridiculous. So um, last year, around £770 million of unspent apprenticeship levy money went to the Treasury, because if you don't spend it uh, within 24 months, it goes to the Treasury, it doesn't come back to you as a business. So it is another form of tax that is removed from the business at any point when you go beyond the three million pound pay bill mark so it's not your turnover it's not your revenue it's not your profit it is on your three million pound pay bill and that volume of money 770 million pounds that isn't being utilized for educational purposes that then goes into the treasury absolutely blows my mind in most yeah, cases yeah. and what what we find is is that many companies don't understand the portal to be able to log in to access to take a look to see actually well how much have we paid in what is there what can we utilize what has dropped off the back end or when do we need to utilize it by and also a lot of companies don't understand the fact that they can levy share so yeah. they can actually gift their levy money to other businesses 
the the third point is just going back to what you said there with regards to um taking the day out of work for training yes the apprenticeship training has to take place in the working day however the working day is based upon the contract of the individual person the rules did change this year so apologies last year so uh, 1st of August 22 the ruling did change and it was always previously based on um the phrase you had to have 20% off the job training that has been adapted because the DfE have taken on board um the suggestions made because if you look at somebody that's working a five-day working week they the businesses can't afford realistically for somebody to be out of the business one day a week unless they've budgeted and planned for that and it is doable and I have worked with many apprentices and that and that is 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 a doable piece however you can adjust the, the delivery so that you can release staff in block release you can release them uh, they their contract may take them over a working weekend so there could be weekend workshops their contract may take them into the evenings so there could be evening workshops and equally now it is based on a six hours average so it, it isn't based on one day a week out oh, of right, your five day right. week it is now based on six hours average a week so you could theoretically gather up those six hours and release on, on a block or or just for an was, hour hour and a half absolutely absolutely there are so many different ways right. that you can um now look at the way that you plan and deliver your apprenticeships and and that's also really key that you meet the needs of the employer as whoever it is that is planning and delivering that training that you're meeting the needs of the employer from a delivery perspective you're meeting the needs of the employer from the skills and knowledge perspective and then you're meeting the needs of the learner from all of that as well and that's really key and it's hugely crucial those conversations at the very beginning that they support everybody in the training of that apprentice and I'm very fortunate the team I work with are particularly good at doing that listening to what the employers need listening to what the learners need and then ensuring that our delivery program meets those needs that's um, we've never had that level of detail have we Sam? <laughs> in 133 say, editions of this chat we've never got to that my my favorite apprentice uh was in one of our outdoor ed centers in lancashire to, yeah. to do administration and he finished his apprenticeship and retired the same day because he was, oh, in, he? He was <laughs> in the 60s when he started his apprenticeship yeah and it's yeah. just sure because people don't realise that apprentice is necessarily a uh, no. 16 to 18 year Absolutely not. It's, no. It's I, I think a lot of businesses at the moment is about re reskilling. Uh, yeah. as, particularly, you know, as the, as the business transforms, you know, we, we, um, we, we talk a lot here uh, and Louis is involved in digital, but, but actually business, you know, businesses going through this digital transformation need to retrain staff and jobs fall off. But, it, you know, certainly for large businesses, when I speak to them, it, it's not about, they're not, you know, they are interested in the younger workforce, but mm -hmm. they're, they're very concerned about how they can keep the staff that they Absolutely. Value, who, yeah. who, who understand the, the, yeah. the principles and the values of the business how they can keep yeah. them working for the business so uh, yeah I mean theoretically you could say if you're employed and you have a pulse you could go on an apprenticeship however many people say to me is it just for 16 to 18 year olds absolutely not it's from anybody that is 16 
as long as they're employed, it doesn't actually matter how old they are. And it, it, you're dead right. It is about upskilling the current workforce as much as getting the new workforce in and then building that correct skill set that's needed for that employer. Well, we're on it. Before we get on to you, Stan, uh, for what's caught your eye, I just wanted to say, because this is linked a, a little bit, I had a very interesting conversation with uh, uh, Professor Jackie Carter, who's a uh, at Manchester University, who's looking at how you prepare young people for the place of work. And uh, uh, I think there's something for some for some young people, there is a sort of like a position that there needs to be a little bit more emphasis on the preparation for apprenticeship even. You know, so that, so it's, it's a very interesting bit of uh, research she's done. And uh, we're, we're going to get her on as a guest, Dan. I think it's going to be... Yeah. Uh, an interesting uh, where she, with the work she's done, the research she's done. It's a it's a challenge, I think, for uh, young people who are in sort of um, uh, who, who are in sort of poorer communities who don't have access to to a sort of broader range of uh, working environments. You know, it's, they some of them are really struggling. You know, they might secure an apprenticeship, but they drop out of the apprenticeship fairly quickly, not because they can't do the work, because they they just don't understand. The, you know, how, how that business is working, what the expectations are of them. And I think there's a lot that Jackie's done and, and also other businesses that have done to sort of try and bridge that gap. Anyway, Stan, um, I'm, I, I'm still taking away what Louisa say about apprenticeships. It's <laughs> spinning around in my head. But anyway, Stan, what's caught your eye this week? Um, strikes, I think, um, mm. in teachings and, and head teachers and the head teachers one particularly, because of the legal requirement that ballots have to go by post. And I saw a, a, something this morning that suggested that maybe three out of four ballots didn't arrive at, at people who were voting. And you think, why is that? Well, one, postage. Second, it was Christmas. Third, the post office has been on strike. <laughs> and it, it's... You just think in this age, and I knew we were going to be talking digital, is it still right to have a postal system by which people can can have a view? I just think it's it's incredibly backward thinking that we're, we're, we're stuck with a postal system. it's ballot. made this – I mean, I think the rules were set up before the digital revolution. Yeah. But actually, I, I don't think there's much enthusiasm within the current government to switch it anytime soon, is there? No, yeah. no definitely um, not. Uh, Except didn't they find it more useful not to use a postal ballot when they were doing um, a major appointment? Yes, yes, they did. Yeah, well, only a few months ago, I think. Yeah, and Um, the other thing about the strikes is is how difficult this is for school leaders because you want to support your colleagues that are on strike, but you've still got to manage an organisation where children are are the the thing you need to protect most. And I, I... I've been ahead while union yeah. action has gone on, but I've not been ahead. I was wasn't ahead through a, an actual strike. I I was a deputy, uh, and I was a member of the uh, NAHT that were not striking. And I remember the head teacher and I. Um, it was one of those sort of strikes where uh, uh, staff would not work during lunchtime, or mm. you know, and it became very so. Children had to go home, and we had uh, just for an hour, and it was in a really tough area they, they simply weren't coming back in the afternoon um and we weren't sure where they were going so we decided to sort of try and keep as many as we could i do remember um being on the playground um with 
I don't know how many children, there were lots and lots of children, just the two of us. And the fire uh, alarm went off in the school. And what that was, was somebody had got into the school, um, pressed the fire alarm, um, because that kept everybody away. And so he, that, that, uh, the, the, the robber went through members of staff's bags and everything while we were on the top playground looking after all of these children, you know. So, um, but the thing for me is it, it, it was particularly, you know, challenging because I, it didn't, it felt as though I, I was very sympathetic. Um, yeah. and, but there was nothing I really, I, I didn't feel as though I could simply walk out and join their strike and leave kids just roaming around the streets of Stockport. You know, it was a very challenging time. Yeah. Um, well, there's a, there's a lot of nonsense about it, isn't there? You know, uh, having a day strike is going to ruin children's lives, you know. Oh, but we're having a day off for a coronation, uh, yeah. and that's okay. That won't ruin their lives. It's yeah. the same day off. And as I think one of the journalists said, half term's coming up. <laughs> five days off. Mm. Um, but I, I feel for head teachers wondering just how to how to manage this and how to cope with it without losing the relationship they have with their colleagues who may or may not be on strike yeah. and individual mm. teachers where one is now on strike because their unions voted to, to, to go out and, and others aren't. Mm. I, I often think, you know, that what you talked about then, Frank, was actually a work to rule, wasn't it? It was, yes. Uh, a work to rule will be far more devastating. It will than than a, a day a day strike. Yeah, that loss, sorry, come to you, Louise. But it was this loss of them for lunchtime. It wasn't yeah. just the fact that they th- there were no lunches. Yeah, it was that aspect as well, you know. Um, but they were working to rule, and it and it was very because it upset the relation. It upset the mood of the morning changed because the kids knew about half eleven we're getting ready for going home. Mm. You know, so, if it, and there was also the teachers felt as though they had to cram everything in. You know, the, the whole yeah. atmosphere of the school changed simply because of that loss of one hour. So, Louise, come to you because I know you were trying to get in. No, it's fine. It, I was interestingly, I was privy to some conversations this week, and um, it was at a governor's meeting, and the governors were asking the head and deputy head how they were preparing, and they said, "Well, we can now actually ask if they're intending to strike." They um, don't have to tell us obviously not one person in that room was against them striking they knew that it was going to cause an issue and they knew it was going to cause challenges however everybody the feeling very much as I sat back and listened was that people knew that there needed to be some sort of change and in the room there was actually um, a paediatric nurse who said we don't want to strike we don't want to close all of the paediatric trauma units across the south because it would have closed um all three and she said that's the last thing we want to do but we 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 genuinely now are losing so many staff through um leaving the nhs and going into bank because they can earn twice the amount of money which is then causing more impact on the nhs or uh, they're going off to different careers and people are coming in for a certain amount of time then meeting burnout and I think this is exactly mirrored in the teaching profession people come in with the gusto that they want to work in that profession they want to make a change impact future and enjoy the career of supporting working with and improving lives for others and then reach a point where they have to decide well either we keep going um, and I try and fuel myself through that point um, into the hope that I reach a salary where I can then 
you know, afford a mortgage or even just to buy, mm. gather a, a deposit for a property, or I have to step away. And the consensus in the room was very much that nobody wanted striking to happen and nobody wanted the impact to happen on anybody. However, everybody had almost got to the point of, well, what else can we do? And I think that's really key for, for people to take away and especially the decision makers. Um, if people are feeling like they're at that point of what else can they do? The We've had so many different strikes recently and all for different reasons and people can give the pros and cons to everything. But I think that's definitely something to, to consider of, um, if this is getting to this point now, to this breaking point. Yeah. I don't think we're far from, a, let's say, a general day of action. Yeah. rather than the generals. I don't think we're far from that. Are we? It only needs yeah. a bit of connectivity between the major unions to say, you know, we're not getting anywhere yeah. with any of this. Yeah. And, and it appears the government just aren't prepared to talk. I was interested with the, the one with the, uh, I think it was the NAHT, uh, who had a meeting this week, who the representatives from the education side said it was a completely useless meeting that um, they've not discussed anything, the government refusing to discuss pay, and the DfE have described it as a constructive talk. <laughs> uh, I mean, the thing, if I can pick up, um, uh, Louise, because the point you're making there was about, in effect, you know, burnout. Mm. And I think the point you're going to talk about, what's caught your eye this week, is in a way a little bit linked to that, isn't yes. it? Yes, yeah, so... Um, I spotted uh, Amanda Spielman uh, gave an interview on, on Radio 5 and was discussing how she was really surprised at the age that youngsters um, have access to smartphones and smart devices. And I think if I was to think really carefully about the youngsters that I know, I absolutely know families where their, their youngsters have smartphones or access to a smart device at, at around a year old probably you know it may be belong to a sibling but they can still access it or they're certainly given their own one potentially by the age of three that, that that that's the device that they have access to and I was I was quite surprised to read that she was surprised and I think when I read into it and, and looked <laughs> Sorry, that, in, that, that, the way you said that actually that is that that is quite telling yeah I thought about that in that sense yeah, so that that's where why I was surprised. So I was surprised that that Amanda was surprised. Now I've never met Amanda, and I and I will never give judgment on anybody that I haven't no, ever no. met. I think what she was trying to get across was was the volume of children that have access to smart devices and the type of access that they have. I think yeah. that was really more of the point that she was potentially <laughs> trying to get around. The, for me, the issues around the online harm. Yes. Just to say, Louise, I think the issue here, uh, Stan and I have both worked you know, uh, in Ofsted, is the, the chief inspector may have a view on that, so, but it's, it's got to be made clear this is an absolutely personal view because yes. there is no evidence gathering by Ofsted inspectors about how young children have got mobile phones yeah. that's not coming no. out of any Ofsted inspection you know and it's no. this it, that troubles Stan and I deeply where yeah. it's you know if she would only just stick to talking about stuff that her inspectors have inspected mm -hmm. that would be a much stronger position than the one where she ventures into well there's some research here that I'm interested in or my personal view, because it holds out then the weakness of, yeah. well, your limited understanding, Amanda, which goes back to the initial shock of your 
in your yeah, response. Yeah, my surprise, yeah. yeah. Is you're revealing now your significant weaknesses in your own experiences. Yeah. You know, and that's a very dangerous place to get to because we're all limited by our experiences. Yeah, absolutely. And when I when I thought about that more in the work that we're doing with staff in schools and staff in colleges, staff in universities, um, it sort of made me sort of take into consideration the other area in the press recently is the fact that four in five schools have experienced some sort of cyber incident. So when we're looking at the volume of work that educators have got on from a curriculum perspective and then all of these added extras, plus we've been catapulted out the back end of COVID into this new digital world that everybody is semi-shocked about, we've muddled through, we've we've got used to using the devices, all the applications that we use, and there's a, still a huge uh, misunderstanding with regards to the device that you use versus the operating platform yes. that you use in the background and my mind sort of then moved on to the other conversations I'd had with um, staff in schools about the fear around Ofsted inspections and that actual fear that sometimes overtakes what they need to say or the way that they need to portray themselves to ensure that Ofsted get that broad understanding that the staff in the schools have that broad knowledge of their schools and their individual school, their individual community and the action points that they're individually working on. And I feel that there is a, a disconnect between the understanding of what is needed on the ground, which almost relates back to the strikes of the skill set that is needed by staff in education. And it doesn't matter what level the staff member is at for um, the understanding of the usage of digital and the implement and um, sorry, the impact of uh, cyber attacks and what you can trigger it, how you can prevent it real easy pieces that you can do that can prevent you from being um, under attack and then the the training for staff around those conversations with Ofsted that are slightly more relaxed and open so the Ofsted inspectors can see the hard work that is being done and the strategies that are being put in place and the not just the strategies because everybody talks about strategies rather than actually the implementation of those strategies but the actual work that's being on the ground so that they can talk about all of the wonderful stuff that's happening but actually all of the areas that require improvement um freely and comfortably so the offset inspectors can then make that real open decision on it well actually yes there may be uh, requirements for improved outcomes here from an academic perspective however actually these learners come in unfed unwashed unkept and we look after them and we care for them and so because we're doing that they're now able to achieve far more academically than they could before and the academic outcomes may be under the requirements of what Ofsted and the government are wanting however if that piece didn't happen if that well-being piece didn't happen or if the control of the digital devices didn't happen those outcomes wouldn't be even remotely improving and I think it's really important for um, staff in schools to have that support and that training around those conversations it certainly happens in FE and I think I'm very fortunate to have had that training and that experience and that exposure in FE of that that training piece And I think it would be extremely useful for the schools and the staff that have approached me to discuss how that training works, how those conversations take place, have 
um, actually said to me, I was worried. I was actually worried to share with them our improvement plan. I was worried that we knew that we had these these yeah. uh, measures to to make. Um, and that's really concerning and it's sad. It's, 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 it's interesting what you say there. I mean, um, the, the issue here is that if only the coordinators, the head of departments realise that they are their proficiency level, their capability level, their understanding of, of digital is likely to be far greater than the inspector who's inspecting them. More than likely. You know, More I mean, it, it, really, yeah. in a way, it's the other, it, it ought to be. And, and in a way, I think what, what we're saying here, a little bit more humility on the Ofsted side. Yeah. yeah. They're actually trying to get underneath the skin of what's going on. That's why they always want to emphasize the, the management or the leadership of the subject, because it doesn't require you to, to get too heavily involved in the more technical aspects yeah. of the subject. But equally, when, when you say, ah, but, you know, we're having to do A, B and C before these children are ready to learn, and therefore we should, we should be al allowed that space... The next thing is straight away. Oh, you're asking for different standards. You're you're lowering standards, and and there's there's a a real elephant in the room where people have got to start saying, well, children that have to go through all these barriers that are significantly disadvantaged, excuse me, are unlikely to achieve those outcomes. And instead of saying, you know, oh, we're trying to keep high expectations for all children, these are high expectations for the children to get through the barriers and the, and the disadvantage that they've got to get to a point where where you're not maybe at the academic level that the expectations of the country, but you were so far ahead of where you might have been had you not had that support, it should be recognised as a, as a great success. But it isn't. No. And the first thing anybody says when you try and challenge that is, mm. oh, so you're suggesting we have lower standards in well, poor I, 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 I think I've said this on many occasions because... I am the uh, contextual value added man, you know, in the sense of when I when I work with Ofsted, I, I drove this measure of contextual value added. So it wasn't just, you know, when we were assessing sort of academic standards, it was trying to take in a broader range of uh, factors. And this work has been taken on by um, Professor George Leckie at Bristol University. And he pushed me towards, and I mentioned, it, I think, a couple of weeks ago, a, a piece of research where uh, consultants, when they're measured in terms of their effectiveness during operations, what's taken into account is the health environment in, in the community. Mm. So if you have a community where a lot of people are smoking, uh, above average numbers of people smoking, then actually chest operations are likely to be less successful than in more wealthy areas, which is the way it works out generally, where there's very you know a low level of smoking. Now, that, that is a contextual factor taken into account in terms of how effective it is. Why is it possible to do that with a consultant, but you can't do that with a head teacher? Mm. I don't yeah, understand yeah. that. No, now, and I think Nobody says to the consultant, oh, because this number died, you've got low expectations. No one yeah. says that. No, I think it's definitely something to be taken into consideration. And I think the... It was interesting on your last podcast, you mentioned with regards to inspectors in schools don't take a look at what it's like to be a learner in that school, yeah. where in FE that happens. So I think that's almost a missed opportunity for them to say, well, what is it like to be a learner in this primary school or in this secondary mm -hmm. school? And actually, then they'll look at the community and look at the learners that are coming in. And I do feel that they do it to an extent, but it would definitely be worthwhile 
being taken into consideration the impact on those outcomes and actually measuring the outcomes against the starting point of the whole learner, not just the academic starting point. Um, However, the work that we're doing with regards to digital technology, uh, the well-being around staff and learners through that digital technology, and then also the tracking of the progress of learners as a whole learner as well through the technology that's available is already starting to have an impact. So that's really nice to see. That's good. Well, it's good to end on a little positive there, isn't it? As well. <laughs> um, well, uh, my one is uh, my what's caught my eye this week is uh, levelling up, and uh, the government's announced this week um, a hun- over a hundred areas where um, their second phase of the levelling up fund has been allocated, and um, I'm I'm really pleased, it, it, genuinely pleased that Blackpool, an area I, I still work in, um, uh, secured forty million pounds for something called a multiversity which is a new word i um but actually this is about uh, robotics and ai development and obviously uh, blackpool has a sort of ambition um it has some major major benefits it has uh, uh, lots of spare land it has a sea it's very windy so there are lots of issues about where it can generate green energy and use the available land for storage, for battery storage and things like that. And it has an ambition to become something called the Silicon Sands uh, of the UK. And I, and I really want to support that, you know, um, and the £40 million pounds will, will certainly go some way to encourage companies to set up business there. The thing that I, that's really frustrated me, the two things are that for the children and young people currently in Blackpool, there is a... a, a it's probably one of the most deprived communities in England is that there is a massive digital shortfall in terms of devices, connectivity at home. um, And this is linked to poverty. And uh, in effect, what we need to do is to find a mechanism whereby we can support their development of digital skills and knowledge so that they secure the jobs that may well come from this big investment. Because the worst thing for me would be if those jobs became available but they went to kid, to young people, adults who currently don't live in Blackpool. We will not have broken this sort of cycle of of uh, mm. of opportunity um, that uh, or lack of opportunity that exists in the town. So, um, yeah, I, I feel frustrated because also that no one told me about it. And I had the press phoning me up yesterday saying, "What do you think about it?" I said, "I have no idea. I don't know what that project is." You know, and and in a way, if we're serious about. This is probably the classic example of a project which is really good for the community, but being kept contained and cased within a box um, and and not pushing it out to seek. Because uh, clearly, educate, school leaders, teachers, we can help that delivery of that project, you know, but actually we don't know anything. It's, it's now dumped on us <laughs> in a way. You've got to make sense of it and, and actually doesn't feel that's the right way to do it. Um, well, doesn't it look the same with a lot of the of the projects around yeah. the country? I was I was only watching the news last night, and there's the Eden project in Morecambe, and everyone's convinced, you know, well, that will bring lots of employment. Will it? Have you got those skills there? Or will it be employment coming in, building, and disappearing afterwards? Yeah. And I just looked at some of the projects, and I am a, a massive fan of the arts. Don't don't. But yeah. I thought this moment in time is, is it really you know 40 million for a theater company uh, 
are those really the things that we need to be doing in our communities? Or should we, and I think my view is the same as Frank, should we be giving that money to the local authorities or people who, and say, what needs, yeah. what needs to be done best to level up? And, you know, I think things like trains, you know, stuff that, that's big that local authorities can't afford to do, that's the, what the money should be. Well, doing. what worries me now is that yesterday, I mean, because, you know, I work for the Northern Powers Partnership, and we're not just about trains, but HS2, um, I don't know if any, I, I don't go down to London anymore. <laughs> you know, the, the train system doesn't work. I, I, I can't even rely on it to get from Cheadle Hume into Manchester. But actually... When can you not get an RAF jet? <laughs> what, to go to Blackpool? Yeah, I, I did see... Somebody put yesterday, I don't know if this was a mistake or not, that, that the Prime Minister had flown from Accrington to... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Accrington Airport. It's not one I've, uh, I've seen uh, before. And I've worked yeah, but the, the, the worry for me is that yesterday when he was pushed by Sky as to, are you going to deliver yeah, on that. too. He was very, very flaky. And and the thing for us, in a sense, is um, if we are serious about levelling up, and, and actually sort of that is about ensuring that the full country is able to contribute to the wealth of the country, and the full country can benefit from those that are, those that are actually fortunate to have a bit more, we need to be able to connect people to do that. And, and actually, at the moment, we have... Um, Bradford, Bradford and Sheffield are terrible places to get to. I mean, as you, I think you said here, Stan. I think you to get to a meeting in Wakefield one yeah. morning. Well, it, well was, it was it was in in Featherstone where the office was based, and to get a train to be there for nine o'clock in the morning, I'd have to leave the previous day. <laughs> and and he, you were only what 35, 40 miles away yeah. from Featherstone. You know, it's absolutely ridiculous. Well, potentially three hours by car. Oh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, so uh, that was me. It was lovely. Well, and I think just to go back to the... It, it's infrastructure and connectivity, whether it's roads, rail, whether it's digital... Or, or bus. Is, ...is where this money should be should yeah. be going if yeah. we are genuine about levelling up, not people's prize projects... I, Ruth Lupton um, is Professor Ruth Lupton at, again at Manchester, but she did some work looking at the kids that didn't get level four in their GCSE in maths and English. She did some work in the northeast and in Manchester, Greater Manchester, uh, comparing a sort of the northeast where um, there is it's quite limited um, uh, bus connectivity between towns and villages. And she looked at Manchester, which she thought was going to be actually very well connected. You know, it's got the tram system, everything. And she found that in the northeast, you know, sadly, the, if you wanted to study particular courses, even though they might be very close, there simply wasn't a bus service you could use as a young person. You know, so the impact of that. But she found similar issues in Greater Manchester, where mm -hmm. the tram system is actually not like the London Underground, where you, you go north, south, east, west. Actually, the system runs north and south. It, it runs into the centre of Manchester and then out again. You can't cut across on the outer regions. And, and they were saying that that's, a, again, a very limiting factor for young people in terms of choosing courses. So they end up having to do a course that's a bit of a, you know, it, it's something perhaps interesting because it's mm. local, but it's not really what I want to do. And mm. London has that super connectivity, which means that you have, you know, you have much more choice because it's easier to get around. Mm. I think even as you move out into the suburbs and certainly even where I am, the 
the connectivity for travel is also limited. So um, we actually eventually had, we moved, we chose to move house because our children couldn't actually go and study where they wanted to go and study. So my son wanted to study vocationally. He wanted to to learn a trade um, in the construction industry. And and he actually said, look, where I want to go, I I can't get. There's no buses. There's nothing. We weren't on a train line. There was no buses. And we weren't even in the middle of nowhere. Um, (laughs) The buses just simply didn't run at the time that he needed to to move. And eventually we said, look, this isn't working for all of us. We we need to to be more central. Um, With regards to investment that I've experienced, for the levelling up, I've been um, having conversations with schools that are using their um, Connect the Classroom funding. So um, and we're talking, you know, a vast amount of funding that is available for schools. So whether that's the school may need £30,000 to um, fix its connectivity because we've got so many schools that have just got black spots. So the, the teachers will take their laptop yeah. And they can't actually go through the door because if they go into the next stage, they're almost talking to people across rooms because they don't go and, any further. And also if, if two two classes are using devices at the same time, yeah. the yeah. Wi-Fi goes down. Yeah, so if the Wi-Fi is not strong enough. So there is there is a lot of investment with uh, Connect the Classroom and um, the, the different levels of that that are happening. Just just as an aside, uh, all schools need to have claimed that by February 2024. Mm-hmm. So please if that's not on your radar please make sure that's on on your (laughs) radar and then there is also the priority investment areas with regards to um other digital connectivity so Portsmouth has had um a large piece of investment I think there's 12 areas and then there is a top three um for that as well so there is funding available and I was at a meeting last night and we were discussing the variety of levels of funding for education that were around or um the ability to go through a process with um perhaps Microsoft or Google or HP or whoever it may be and it could be Apple for example and they'll actually then the devices will be match funded up to yeah. ten thousand pounds or they will be gifted or they'll be you know mm-hmm. so there is when I was talking last night I think around the whole table it, from what everybody said at this meeting we're sort of hitting around the 35 40 million pound mark that was that was available and it's about ensuring and i think that's something else that um people are very good at in primary goal is connecting people to that funding as well or if the schools and the education establishments come in and say we've got that funding what can we do with it we will advise and support and signpost because we can't um, support them with everything but we can certainly signpost to the people that we know that can and I think that's also really key to ensure that the education piece sometimes isn't always necessarily looked at from a business perspective on on how to utilize that money and it's really key about looking at that whole piece which um i think to support everybody in leveling up is something that we definitely need to to take that consideration in and and like you said the, the 40 million has gone in at the top end of education we need to make sure that in that area where you are that it's it definitely feeds the whole way down and then vice versa the whole way up well one good thing i saw on twitter you know, that sort of sums up how things are different over the last three or four years. And it was a former guest of ours who's a head teacher over in Frank's um, 
neck of the woods. And there's uh, it said that because of the snow, the buses weren't running and the pavements were not very good. So for those pupils who couldn't make it into school, please log on to Google Classrooms at this time. Yeah. And you know, virtually it just felt as though and your education won't be yeah, it's it's so, seamless. Yeah. It's seamless. Yeah. Yeah. And realistically, that is that is really how it should be. We yeah. want children to go to school and attend school for a, for a whole variety of reasons, whether that's safeguarding, the community perspective, um, having the interaction with other people, communicating verbally, running around, taking part in all of those different activities that happen in that school or educational establishment environment. Um, however, if there is anything that happens, it simply should be on you get and, yeah. and jump on because it's, it is the way of the world. It isn't the way of the future. The future's here. Um, it will just keep improving and getting better and slicker, yeah. and that's what we need to ensure but, that we as Frank says, if if the children in less affluent areas don't have the uh, yeah. the kits to be able to jump on, then yeah. again, that that widens that gap. It does. I, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna move us on because actually, we uh, having said that we were gonna do thirty to thirty five minutes at the beginning. We are now well over 40 minutes uh, and we've still got um, we've got this new sort we, we, we're not doing room 101 anymore, but we're asking our guests to identify one thing they would like to see improved um, for it, Well, it, it, I suppose it's society, but if it has an education slant, that would be even better. But uh, what have you what have you chosen, Louise? So I've uh, chosen businesses to be affiliates to schools. And I've, I've chosen to talk about that for a number of reasons because um, the amount of schools uh, that I've spoken to and colleges where they're struggling to get work experience placements yeah. for, the, for their learners. And we have a variety of educational courses out there that demand that those work placement pieces take place. So whether that's T-levels or one of the voc other vocational qualifications, um, it, it is really difficult and the establishments put a lot of time, effort and funding into just sorting out those placements. If I take the secondary school, I'm going to use my son as an example. Um, the school in the end had to employ somebody and then it was from an outside business and we were charged as parents. Oh, um, wow. It was a £45 fee for them to oh, find a work placement for our child. Um, as it was, oh. I said to my son, absolutely not. Honestly, I have to say, our guests make it's illegal if it's part you know, of the curriculum. These, these guests, you, you, the guests bring so much variety, don't they? Yeah. Stan? So, uh, I said to my son, uh, Would you rather the £45 in your pocket or <laughs> would you write a letter and make some phone calls and, and uh, get out and about and make those contacts? I said, Or would you, what would you rather? And he, and He's uh, he's got a, already got a very business minded thinking process, and he said, uh, "I want forty five pounds. What do I need to do?" <laughs> so he he earned his forty five pounds, which is a, a good a good experience for him. And then I've spoken to secondary schools in my area recently and been approached and said, "Is there any way that you can support us?" Because pre COVID, it was, "Oh, we'll consider it, or we'll mm. maybe take one." Um, and and then actually, when it comes to it now, post COVID, they just say no. And I think if we my thought process comes from 
military ships have have affiliates with towns and yes. mili military ships in Portsmouth City have affiliations with schools as well. So usually each ship, depending on the size of the ship, will have anywhere between one and three schools that it's affiliated with. It's a loose affiliation, but it is there. And my thought process behind it was is I'm going to use Portsmouth as an example because I've got the numbers easy in my mind at the moment. We've got 27,000 children, we've got 63 schools, and we've got somewhere in the region of 8,500 businesses. And there are approximately 450 of those that I would call would be heavy hitters, big players. So we've got 450 businesses and 63 schools. And in my mind, I would love to see that connectivity between businesses stepping forward and saying, actually, do you know what? We are based in this area and we will be affiliated to that primary and that secondary, or we'll be affiliated to that primary and that, that infant and so on. And therefore, there is automatically that support network to provide work experience placements. And it may be that the schools need to take a look at whether they um, release them in a filtered fashion rather than on block. And then also there is the affiliation there with regards to levy sharing. So large businesses to the schools and then also bigger businesses to smaller businesses because we could even hook up a large and a small business with the school. So there is that sort of combined um, approach. But that is, that's what I wanted to bring okay. today very much that there was mm -hmm. that affiliated sponsorship style piece between our business community and our education community. One one thing I offered last week in um, in our first edition of the of this chat, I, we came up with ten things that were relatively cheap yeah. for education. One of mine was around you know, to give tax tax benefits to, to yeah. businesses that actually do you know reach out and offer these sorts of services you know to mm -hmm. to, to their community. Um, it, it wouldn't cost the schools anything. That was the key. But it, yeah. it would be a benefit to the to the business, but it would be a massive benefit yeah. to to uh, to the schools. I don't know if um, the businesses would get approval for a tax relief. No, 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 However, no, no. perhaps uh, I, I certainly worked for a large corporation in London um, twenty twenty five years ago, and we were allowed to nominate a charity to donate time to, and so it could be from that perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there is there is definitely uh, options there absolutely in opportunities right. it's just about people having the will to drive it forward yeah well that's uh, when to start that is yeah 41 minutes <laughs> of really interesting oh, well. chat uh yeah. I, I think of yeah is this you, you've brought a different dimension today louise i think it's been a really interesting chat and i think people who listen to this um this the conversation we have every week will will agree that uh it's it's been a fascinating chat and i'm really pleased that you've been able to join us and and also just to plug primary goal you know not that i'm an advocate so i'm not actually not dealt with the you know not managed that process but if you want a, a bit more information about uh, what the work that louise does then uh, uh just pump in primary goal into any search engine and it, and it pops up as your first choice so uh, which, I, which i've done uh anyway so thank you louise uh thank, no, you, thank Stan. you um and uh yeah, another guest next week and uh, all being well, the weather will be a little bit better. Frank will be out running. Stan will be out <laughs> walking. Yeah. 
The cardigan. Uh, well, on the south coast, I might be out sunbathing. You never know. <laughs> not quite yet. So, but thank you very much for having no, me. No, it's been, been an pleasure. absolute an absolute pleasure for us as well. And uh, yeah. to all our followers, we'll see you all being well next week. Bye bye. Bye. <laughs>